0: One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.
1: Is it harmless to do yoga, or is there a connection to spiritual power that has an effect on any person participating in a class or doing it on his or her own? Are yoga postures just physical exercises? Or in Hinduism, are they dedicated to various deities? And if so, is there some kind of spiritual connection there? Now, I know that there are many people who do yoga stretches who never even consider the connection to the teachings that are in Hinduism concerning those postures. But this is something we need to be aware of and certainly something that should affect our decisions in this particular area. Now, right before I started this podcast, I happened to read on the internet this quote from EckhartYoga.com. It says, As a way of connecting to, revering, and paying respect to deities, many yoga postures represent not just what the deity looks like, but also everything they stand for. As we practice the posture, we put our focus on the energy and the essence of the deity. And here's the disturbing part to me. And we look to embody their qualities. In other words, it is an invocation to various gods and goddesses to manifest themselves in the life, in the heart of the yoga practitioner. Now, this is going to be a little challenging to communicate on the audio aspect of the podcast because I'm going to have to describe each one of the postures as I share with you the Hindu deity that particular posture is dedicated to. But we always simultaneously do a video podcast. So if you'd like to see the images of the deities and also the explanation visibly of what the posture looks like, then go to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Mike Shreve Ministries and you'll be able to not only hear this episode but see the various pictures that will help you get in your mind and get in your thinking exactly what I'm referring to. Now, most of the pictures that we will use are of children doing yoga. Why have I chosen to do that? Because recently, I was contacted by a group of conservative and God-loving people in Alabama leaders, influencers in that state who were very disturbed because May of 2021, the ban against yoga being taught in the public schools was lifted. In fact, Alabama was the last of 50 states to have a ban on yoga. And I mentioned to one of the people that contacted me, that was a trophy in Alabama's cabinet that should not have been relinquished. But they did lift the ban, and now I'm going to be working together with those individuals, very prominent individuals, to reverse that law and hopefully reinstate that ban. Because I cannot imagine vulnerable children doing these yoga postures, not knowing that it is is a connection to a spiritual power that is intentionally sought after by those who are serious advocates of yoga. Now, on this particular podcast, I'm going to focus on 10 positions, 10 postures that are dedicated to specific deities. And we're going to start off with the lotus position, which is the most basic posture you assume usually in a yoga class, and the hand mudra that is referred to as the Gyana uh, mudra. And the posture is referred to again as the lotus position. Why? The lotus is a flower that floats on the surface of a body of water, like a pond or a lake or a creek and the roots of that lotus are in the mud beneath the surface. And so it represents symbolically those who rise above the lower nature, those who rise above the sense bondage that every human being is in, being cognizant only of what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, And that's like a prison of the five natural senses. And most individuals never break beyond the bounds or limitations of those senses. But the lotus flower represents rising up through the limitations on most human beings to blossom above the uh, constraints, the boundaries of human consciousness That's why it's considered a sacred symbol, a sacred flower in most Eastern religions. Now, what about the Gyan Mudra, which is the position of the forefinger touching the thumb and the other three fingers extended outright? What harm could there be in that? Uh, Of course, it's taught that that helps the energy to circle through your body, but there's a spiritual symbolism attached to it. The forefinger represents the individual soul, which is referred to in Hinduism as Atman. The thumb represents the oversoul, or the ultimate reality in Hinduism referred to as Brahman, which is a cosmic force, a level of consciousness, not a personal god. And when someone assumes The lotus position, and then curls their forefingers around to touch their thumbs, and usually they rest their hands on their knees. The picture is of a child raising his hands upward, but still assuming that mudra. It is a prayerful statement that the individual soul will come into union with Brahman, with this ultimate reality, that is envisioned as an impersonal life force, a cosmic level of consciousness. Well, that is not the true God, and that is an invocation, therefore, to a false God to take you over, to manifest within you, and to bring you up to a higher level of consciousness, like the lotus flower breaking out of the limitations of the lower nature. Well, that may not be what you intend for it to mean when you assume that position in a yoga class. You may think you're just getting ready for an exercise session, but what you're doing is very symbolic spiritually and very much an attraction to powers that are supernatural, that are not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a different power altogether that you access during the yoga sessions. Now, the second pose that we're going to focus on is the tree pose. And for the sake of those that are listening to this on the audio podcast, I'll describe what it looks like. You stand on one foot and the other leg is bent at the knee and the foot is placed next to the opposite knee and then the hands are lifted in a prayerful palm-to-palm position. And that's referred to, again, as the tree pose. Now, that particular pose is dedicated to the Hindu deity named Vishnu. And Vishnu is one of the three most revered deities. It's called the Hindu triad. It's not the same as the trinity of the Bible, not at all. But there is a similar kind of approach where there are three revered deities. Now, Brahma is the creator god, Vishnu is the preserver god, and Shiva is the destroyer god. And we're going to get to Shiva next. But they're part of a pantheon, once again, of 330 million gods and goddesses which is the traditional number, certainly not an exact number. Now, number three is the dancer pose. And the dancer pose is dedicated to Shiva, the destroyer god, who is the source of the destruction and rebirth of the universe during cycle after cycle, endless cycles, according to Hindu teaching of the universe being dissolved and then reappearing. And Shiva is the one who effects that. And also Shiva is the source of the death and rebirth of the soul in various reincarnations. And that's the cosmic dance, so to speak. And so the dancer pose is dedicated to the one who effects that. Now, what does it look like? The person assuming that pose stands on one leg again, and then lifts the other leg behind him or her, and then grabs uh, the foot and lifts the leg up in a circular fashion behind the head, and and then tries to balance in that pose. And again, it looks like just a harmless physical position, but it's a spiritual connection to the deity of destruction. Now, in the Bible, the destroyer is not a deity unless you were to refer to him as the God of this world, as Jesus referred to him. Certainly not a God to be worshipped, but an entity of great spiritual power. Satan is the, the God of this world in the sense that his spirit controls the nature of this planet and has infiltrated societies and cultures and has contaminated the human race The spirit that works in the children of disobedience is traced right back to Satan himself. He is the destroyer. In fact, that's very much what the name Satan really uh, represents. He's the hater. He's the destroyer of the human race. Now, number four is the warrior number two pose. That is dedicated to a god named Ganesha. And Ganesha is half human and half elephant. From the shoulders up, it's the head of an elephant. From the shoulders down, it's the body of a human. And there's a myth about how that took place. Actually, uh, this was a deity created by Parvati, a female uh, goddess, who wanted this deity to guard her while she was bathing in her home. And her consort, her husband, so to speak, Shiva was gone. And when he came back, this uh, created being that Parvati had created in order to guard her home refused him entrance. And so Shiva lopped his head off. And when he found out that actually that uh, entity was not an enemy, but one who was guarding his wife or his consort, Then he sent some of his servants down to the earth with the instructions to cut off the head of the first living thing they came to. And unfortunately, the first thing encountered was an elephant. And so they brought the head of the elephant back to the celestial world. It was placed on this entity's body. And thus the deity that is an overcomer of obstacles was brought into being and that deity is named Ganesha. And you see that deity depicted many times. Well, when you assume the warrior pose, which is a pose where the one arm is stretched out to the front, the other arm is stretched out to the back, and both legs are stretched apart as if a person is about to lunge forward. But that's a connection to a false god. The next pose is the splits pose. And that's, of course, where the legs split uh, to opposite extremes. But usually the one participating in that posture lifts his or her hands above their heads in that prayerful position of palm to palm. Now, who is that dedicated to? Or is that just a split like you would do in a gymnastics class? No, that particular pose is dedicated to the god Hanuman, which is Uh, a god who has the appearance of a monkey and a man and is the blending of an animal and a human appearance. The standing pose is the next one, and the standing pose requires a mudra as well, and that mudra is what appears uh, to be the hand position of someone playing the flute, which is something assigned to Krishna. Now, Krishna is one of the most revered Hindu deities. Many people are Krishna devotees, and some who are devoted to Krishna say that Krishna is the ultimate reality, not Brahman. And so there is disagreement within the ranks of those who embrace Hinduism over who or what constitutes ultimate reality. But according to the myths associated with that god, Krishna had 16,108 wives when he was on the earth, and by each one of those wives, he had 10 children, and he separated himself into 16,108 forms so he could live in a palace which, with each one of those wives and those children. Now, does that sound like a believable myth to you? And yet when the standing pose is assumed, which is a very simple pose, crossing the feet, standing erect, and then holding the hands in a certain mudra form, that is a connection to a false deity. The next pose is a very disturbing one. When you see the goddess it is dedicated to, it's actually called the goddess pose, and it is a worshipful offering to the goddess named Kali. Now, Kali is depicted as a very vicious being. In fact, in the picture that I provide, she has a bloody sword in one hand, a decapitated head in the other. She is standing with one foot on the god Shiva, and there is a necklace of skulls around her neck, which is a very fearsome looking deity. And when anyone in a yoga class assumes the goddess pose, they know they're tapping into goddess power to be fierce women, strong women, or at least many people who do it with the knowledge of what these postures mean, will know that it's a connection to a spiritual power. And uh, the way it looks is uh, a person will spread both legs as far as they can to either side, squat down and rest their hands with a gyan mudra on their knees with back erect. Next, number eight is the crocodile pose. The crocodile pose is a very simple pose of just laying flat on your face with your arms underneath your head. And it's dedicated to a God who is, respected as a God who represents morality and righteousness and good choices, a God named Rama, who was supposedly an incarnation of Vishnu or an avatar of Vishnu. I might include that the last word on Gandhi, on Gandhi's lips when he was assassinated, when someone shot him, the last words he said were, hey, Rama. So apparently he was calling on the god Rama, which is an insufficient name to step from this realm of time into the realm of eternity, because there's only one name that is above every name, and the name by which every man must be saved is the name Yeshua or the name Jesus and that is the only name that connects you to the savior of all mankind. Number nine is the cat-cow pose, and that's where a person first bends their back inward and then bends their back outward, and that's called the cat-cow pose on your knees and on your hands. That is dedicated to the goddess Saraswati, which is the goddess of learning and education a female deity that is greatly respected among those who worship these deities. Next is the sun salutation, which usually begins a set of yoga postures, especially in the morning. It's a set of 12 different postures that are dedicated to Surya, who is the sun god. Now let me show you what the Bible has to say about the connecting the creator with the creation, or worshiping an aspect of creation as an embodiment of the divine power behind it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, in the complete Jewish Bible, it reads this way, they have exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Praise be he forever. Amen. And so, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, for falsehood, by worshiping created things as an embodiment of the creator. Because see, in Hinduism, the universe is a manifestation of the Godhead. So everything contains a divine essence. And because of that, many times worship is connected to physical aspects of the universe. There's a goddess that is connected to the earth itself, Gaia. All right, let's go to the scriptures that deal with the idea of these yoga poses being offerings to Hindu deities. See, I've been in India. In fact, I've been in Hindu temples in India where they have a a stream, a, a crowd of worshipers coming through the temple, laying flowers and fruits at the feet of these wooden and metal forms that are representative of gods and goddesses to them? And what did Paul say about that? Whether it be a yoga posture that is an offering to the deity or flowers and fruits that are offerings to the deities, what does the apostle tell us? He said, what am I trying to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20? in the New Living Translation. He said, am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. So now it's getting more serious. It's not just trying to connect with an imaginary deity that doesn't exist, but you are connecting with a demon or demons that are impersonating those deities. No wonder people who do yoga, people who participate in yoga classes may unknowingly have encounters with demonic forces. I've I've had people call me from around the world desperate because they just started doing yoga thinking that it was physical exercises, and they started having something called spontaneous kundalini awakenings. And I'm going to touch on that in just a minute. First, I want to share with you, though, before I get into what the kundalini is, that the deity that is referred to as the Lord of Yoga, the Lord of Yoga is the destroyer god, Shiva. And so there is a definite connection between Shiva and anyone who is a yoga advocate. Whether it's recognized or not, whether you are consciously aware of it or not, there's a spiritual connection there. And see, people, when they do yoga, don't realize that the very word yoga means union. It comes from a Sanskrit word that means yoke and the implication is union, that your whole desire is to come into union with the oversoul, with Brahman, with ultimate reality, with God consciousness, or what has been also called self-realization. Now, why would you call God consciousness self-realization? Because within the ranks of those those who believe this in Hinduism, and the vast majority of people who embrace Hinduism do, when you come to that ultimate experience of self-realization, you actually realize that you are God, which is the absolute antithesis of the truth. It's the absolute opposite of the truth. So what about this thing called the Kundalini? See, the main purpose for Hatha yoga, which is made up primarily of asanas, which are physical exercises, and pranayama, which are breathing exercises, where you don't get into the chanting of mantras, you don't get into the Raja yoga, the mental kind of perceptions that help you escape this world into a higher reality you're just doing the basics. Just doing the basics now. Just uh, pranayama, which is breathing exercises, and asanas, which are physical exercises. However, they were created. They are the third and fourth limb of the eight limbs of yoga, according to Patanjali, that leads you to this state called God consciousness. Wow, this is really serious. See, The idea is that there is a dormant power at the base of the spine called the kundalini. And the word kundalini means serpent power. And when you do the yoga postures, it stirs up that dormant power that then rises like a a serpent up the spine, going through all the chakras. There's supposedly six energy centers leading up to the seventh energy center or chakra, which is called the crown chakra. And the teaching is that the power at the base of the spine is the Shakti power, which is the female consort of Shiva. Shiva is the god of destruction. And when the Shakti power rises up through the spine, through the various chakras to the crown chakra, it merges with Shiva and you go out into oneness with God. You're yoked with that God. No, what happens is you become demon-possessed, which is a very terrible outcome of people that many times are sincerely trying to reach a peaceful place spiritually. They're trying to find fulfillment and wholeness spiritually, but actually they're opening themselves to a very diabolical influence. Now, let me give you two last scriptures, and I'm going to close first second Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 16 says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers now remember the word yoga means yoke and it implies union with Brahman. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I urge you, To lay aside that yoke of yoga, but assume this yoke that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which is the yoke of discipleship, the yoke of serving God the way the firstborn son served God in this world. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The guru I studied under back in 1970 said that we would have to study yoga our whole lifetime, most likely, and quite possibly two or three reincarnations before we would achieve Christ consciousness, God consciousness. And it required intense discipline. We went from 3.30 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon every day in some kind of yogic discipline, week after week, month after month, year after year, to achieve oneness with God. Jesus said, my yoke is easy because all you're required to do is receive him as Lord of your life. Accept him into your heart. Ephesians 3.17, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith And you are born again when the Spirit of God enters into you. It's not a latent serpent power at the base of the spine. It's the Spirit of the living God entering into you from without. It's a completely different approach. And you're born again and you receive the gift of eternal life. That yoke is easy. Discard the yoga yoke and take the yoke of serving the Lord Jesus Christ the rest of your life.